these guidelines do not have the force of law, of course, but they do declare to the bar and the public and interested parties you know, what the positions of the enforcement agencies are going to take and the basis for lawsuits they may bring. Whether they win or lose those lawsuits remains to be seen. Whether they can get an increasingly conservative judiciary to go along with changes in policy remains to be seen. But the enforcement agencies have complete control over what the guidelines themselves say. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations. Today, I have with me Philip Giordano. Philip is a partner at Hughes Hubbard. Philip, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Happy to be here. Nice to talk to you, Tom. Philip, could you tell us your professional background? I spent 15 years at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, and my practice there was merger review, primarily in financial markets and in high-tech markets. And toward the end of my sojourn there, I spent about five years prosecuting price-fixing cartels for the national criminal section. I came out of the division in 2014, and after a stint at Arnold Porter, I came to Hughes and Reed. And I really am an antitrust specialist. My practice is always focused on antitrust, and that's really what I, I specialize in. Well, I have to acknowledge you for calling it the division. I have a friend who's a former antitrust division lawyer, and he continually reminds me it's the only division at the Department of Justice referred to as the division. Good to find out he hasn't been pulling my leg all these years. <laughs> well, there you have it. Is your uh, current practice at Hughes Hubbard built around antitrust as well? Yeah, it is. I work with a number of antitrust partners here, and the focus is on a couple of different aspects of antitrust. First, we support our corporate department in their transactional practice, doing merger, mergers and acquisitions, bringing those transactions to the FTC and to the DOJ, going through their merger review processes under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act. We also handle quite a bit of civil litigation. Right now, I am involved in a significant defense of a class action antitrust case that's got several billion dollars in commerce at issue. Lastly, we also, I personally practice in the area of criminal defense. So when uh, corporations and individuals are accused by the Department of Justice of price fixing or market allocation and are subject to criminal investigations, we'll handle the, our own internal investigations responding to the enforcement authorities. I can't really think of an area at the Department of Justice that changed more when we had the change in administration. So I wonder if we could start with sort of a macro look at the current department under the Biden administration's changed attitude and ask you, what are some of the biggest changes you have seen in the now last 18 months or so? 
Well, the Biden administration certainly has taken a much stronger and aggressive approach to antitrust enforcement than certainly the Trump administration and even the Obama administration before them. Antitrust has become sort of a general topic of conversation and even a political issue. And the Biden administration has acted on that interest and the, the agenda they've set, first by appointing some very aggressive antitrust enforcement officials to head their agencies. Jonathan Cantor at the, as the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust at the DOJ, Lena Khan at the FTC, the chair of that commission, and Tim Wu is also handling competition policy for President Biden at the White House. And these three have been pushing a very a progressive agenda. And as a result, over the last 18 months, we've seen a pivot, really, starting with an executive order back in, I believe, July 2021, where the Biden administration sort of announced a whole of government approach to antitrust enforcement, not just the traditional DOJ and FTC enforcement agencies, but a program that would involve attention to antitrust issues from the Labor Department to pretty much every other part of the federal government executive agencies. And over the last months, the FTC and the DOJ have begun rolling out new policies in the antitrust area. And they range from rescission of Trump policies. For example, they rescinded the vertical merger guidelines to heightened scrutiny of mergers, announcements that they're going to expand the scope of merger review, retrenchment in terms of the kinds of protections that are sometimes offered to merging companies. And they've changed these policies at the detailed level and also at the macro level. And one of the most important policy revamps currently underway is revision to the horizontal merger guidelines. And the horizontal merger guidelines have been in place for decades, certainly before I, I started as an antitrust attorney. They've gone through periodic revisions. So the fact that they're being revised is not wholly remarkable. But the scope of the revision that we expect the FTC and the DOJ to undertake is going to be really a milestone, I think, in the development of those guidelines, in part because of the scope of the commentary that the DOJ and FTC have requested from, from the public and from the antitrust bar. I think we can expect to see guidelines that are going to address presumptions about what kinds of transactions are anti-competitive, Con concentration thresholds, for example, that would trigger presumptions about the effects of a transaction. There's, there'll be a targets uh, toward monopsony power. I think that's an important area that the agencies are interested in, particularly labor markets. I expect to see revisions in the horizontal merger guidelines addressing that aspect of antitrust. Certainly, a expected area of expanded enforcement and guidance is going to be in the area of potential competitors and acquisition of potential competitors and acquisition of nascent competitors. You see that in the enforcement the FTC has brought against Facebook, for example, their acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram. So really, an across-the-board review of the horizontal merger guidelines is, is going to be one of the major legacies, I think, of the, of the Biden administration. And I think legacy is the right term because these guidelines do not have the force of law, of course, but they do declare to the bar and the public and interested parties you know, what the positions of the enforcement agencies are going to take. 
and the basis for lawsuits they may bring. Whether they win or lose those lawsuits remains to be seen. Whether they can get an increasingly conservative judiciary to go along with changes in policy remains to be seen. But the enforcement agencies have complete control over what the guidelines themselves say. And that may be the most enduring legacy. Philip, what do these changes mean, if anything, for mergers and acquisitions? I think they're going to mean a lot. I think a lot of people are asking that very question. More than anything else, it means there's going to be less certainty because even after the guidelines come out, which could be many months into the future, you still don't know how they're going to be implemented and the degree to which they will be followed by the courts when the DOJ brings brings actions to enforce the new guidelines. So there's just going to be a lot of uncertainty. To what degree is it, you know, once a deal has been closed, is it beyond review? Um, to what degree is a vertical merger going to be under the DOJ or, or FTC scrutiny? Traditionally, vertical mergers, you know, have are largely pro-competitive and you wouldn't expect a lot of an investigative response there, but that's no longer the case. Even conglomerate mergers, uh, as many of your listeners may know, you know, a conglomerate merger is where the two parties don't really have any relation to each other. They're not competitors. They're not a vertical relationship like a supplier-customer relationship. It's just a conglomeration of the two parties. There was interest in blocking conglomerate mergers back in the 50s and 60s, and that fell by the wayside. But Chair Khan has been talking about blocking conglomerate mergers. So another element of uncertainty, to what degree are the DOJ and FTC going to investigate mergers in markets that aren't as, aren't as concentrated as they've investigated in the past. What about potential competitors and the acquisition of potential competitors? You know, what are the rules there? How are they going to know whether a potential competitor is going to emerge as a full-fledged competitor and turn out to have an acquisition of adversely affected competition? The list goes on. There's some question about whether or not the enforcement agencies are going to bring cases on based on novel antitrust theories. You know, for example, self-preferencing, which is the basis for the Amazon case. One of the areas where I think there's going to be a little bit more certainty is there are going to be broader investigations in the sense that you know the questions that the enforcement agencies are going to have are going to go beyond just the relevant market, but they might be looking at implications for labor markets, implications for governance issues, implications for even like environmental issues. You know, we see the staff at the FTC and the DOJ posing questions during the second request process having to do with all these areas, which is new. The other thing I think we can count on is that merger reviews are going to take longer. Right now, the average merger review is running something like 10 months, and that will probably become longer as their investigations become more in-depth and uh, broader in scope. So what has the business community and Congress had to say about this? Have you seen pushback and how will that pushback, do you think, be taken by the Department of Justice? There's already been quite a bit of pushback from the business community, but will that change the administration's approach? I don't think so. I think this administration is committed and publicly committed to a, a very aggressive enforcement agenda. You've seen as of the agencies address criticism that has come from Republican members of Congress. And so, you know, despite this widespread criticism, they've been forging ahead. And on that topic, I mean, there are even elements of a more conservative political spectrum that are on board with some modifications and amendments to the antitrust laws. There are any number of legislative proposals, for example, in the House and the Senate 
to expand the reach of the antitrust laws. And there is real potential for some of this legislation to pass because of Republican support for that aspect of the Democrats' agenda. Philip, I'd now like to turn to a specific issue that certainly got my attention and I think many others as well, which is generally around no poaching clauses. I've been subject to no poaching clauses, certainly in my law firm tenure and in my life in corporate America. What's the basic antitrust argument against these clauses, at least as they relate to individual employees? It's a very interesting area of antitrust law. In some ways, it's very conventional. In some ways, it's very novel. So a no-poach agreement is an agreement among competitors not to poach each other's employees, not to steal your competitor's engineers if they don't steal your engineers. There are different sort of gradations. It can be a non-solicitation agreement. That's sort of the first step. But you can go further and agree not to hire each other's non-solicitation is if we won't call your engineers. But if they call us, then they're free game. A non-hire agreement is one step further, where we agree not to hire each other's employees. And even sort of a third step further is agreements regarding what you'll pay your employees, wage agreement. So they're not novel in that the DOJ is arguing that a wage-fixing agreement is just like any other price-fixing agreement. The wage is the price, and if you're agreeing with another company to fix the wages of the employees, it's a price-fixing agreement, and that it should be treated under the per, per se standard as a criminal violation of the Sherman Act, and that this is criminal conduct that is long been prohibited by the Sherman Act. There have been a couple of cases, one of them in Texas, that have addressed wage fixing that the DOJ has lost uh, very recently in April. They've also lost, interestingly enough, a case that wasn't about wage fixing, but was about a non-solicitation agreement, which is sort of the, 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 the first step that I was describing. The DOJ there, again, alleged that the agreement was a per se violation of the Sherman Act, and they brought a criminal case as a consequence. And in both cases, they managed, first of all, they survived a motion to dismiss. So they were able to convince the judges in those cases that they could proceed under, as criminally, first of all, and under a per se theory. But once they got to the jury under the per se theory, they were not able to convince the jury of their case. And not only were they not able to convince them, but they faced acquittals in both cases. So that's sort of an important signal, I think, from the general population in terms of how they feel about how no poach agreements should be treated under the antitrust laws. Do you think in those cases we really saw the conscience of the community or was it something else? Criminal cases are always very fact-specific. Obviously, there's questions of what did the accused intend by their agreement. And I think that in both cases, for different reasons, defense attorneys were able to convince the juries that the accused conspirators, although they intended to enter into an agreement, the intent of the agreement wasn't to fix prices. Given these two trial losses, what, if anything, should in-house lawyers be considering in drafting either non-solicitation agreements or no poaching agreements? Well, you know, when it comes to their commercial agreements, you will often find a, you know, a no poach clause, whether it's the non-solicitation or even no hire flavor of it. You typically do not see wage agreements in no poach clauses, but there are legitimate reasons for entering into no poach provisions. 
when you have a commercial relationship with either a supplier or customer, a joint venture partner, for example, when there's a legitimate business engagement with another entity, sometimes a no-poach agreement is key to getting that deal done in the first place. You generally don't want to enter into a joint venture agreement with a competitor and let them get to know your employees and then build relationships with them and then potentially lose them because your competitors had that kind of access to your employees. So you may not enter in that joint venture agreement because of that risk. Well, in that kind of instance, a no-poach agreement can, can be perfectly legitimate. The purpose is not to press competition, but in fact, promote the legitimate joint venture. So the message here is not, is not no poaches are out the window. It's very much, you know, what is the purpose? Does it serve a collaboration with another company that the antitrust laws are meant to encourage. Philip, do you see this type of aggressive enforcement and review of mergers and acquisitions continuing, uh, certainly through the end of the first term of the Biden administration, and potentially if there is a second term during that length of time as well? It's a little bit hard to say what the future may bring. It's a bit of a crystal ball exercise. The 2024 election may moderate the Biden administration's view on antitrust. Then again, it may not. But, you know, I think generally the expectation is that the Biden administration intends to hold its course and that we're one of the antitrust agency heads to finish their tenure, that when the Biden administration appointed a new head of the agency, that they would find someone just as aggressive in terms of their enforcement policies. So at least in this, within the scope of the Biden administration, I think that the the progressive and aggressive antitrust enforcement agenda is will be sort of the, the standard. That said, if the Republicans take the White House, then all bets are off. Antitrust has become very politicized, like a lot of other things in this country. And there could be a sea change in antitrust enforcement if Republicans were to gain control of the White House. Well, Philip, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or any of the topics that you've talked about or the Hughes Hubbard practice in this area, what would be the best way for them to find out? Well, they certainly can go to the Antitrust Division's website. They provide written guidance for along a number of issues. I said I mentioned the horizontal and vertical merger guidelines. There's also guidelines for human resource professionals when it comes to non-competes in employment contracts, no poach provisions and collaborations among competitors. The Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission both have very good homepages when it comes to merger enforcement. And of course, Hughes Hubbard Reads Competition Practice has a very good website with a lot of client alerts that I would encourage listeners to check out. That's at hugheshubbard.com backslash practices backslash antitrust and competition with hyphens. So that's another resource for your listeners. Well, Philip, I wanted to uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Thanks for taking the time.